Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. This is week 4 of our eight-part series, What We Value. Today, the biblical value of gospel-changed relationships. Relationships transformed by the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus because of the gospel. So please stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to see quite simply today how the gospel changes relationships. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you call and choose and unify people from every tribe and nation and language to worship you forever. We thank you, Lord, that our relationships are radically reoriented according to your will revealed in your word. Lord, we pray that you would grant clarity, faithfulness, that you would change us by your spirit through your word today. Desire to magnify Jesus Christ and to glorify the Father. Lord, we are gloriously dependent upon your sovereign work to bring about gospel-changed relationships, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Gospel-changed relationships... Not everyone experiences them. Life in the body of Christ among fellow believers as we live it and as we contribute to it is often the best of times and the worst of times. Many good things happen in Christ's body. Lives changed, souls saved, relationships reconciled, neighborhoods and nations reached. God is glorified and so much good. God at work in the lives of his people. But at the same time, many relationships are shaky at best. There is drama, bickering, badgering, bullying, grudges, resentment, revenge, infighting, backbiting, Hard hearts, pride, unrest in God's family and more households than we'd like to admit. It's the best of times and the worst of times. What I hope you see today is that there are are eternal, positional, biblical truths that are operating under the surface of what we see that should change how we live on a daily basis. 
God wants to change our hearts. He wants to change our homes. He wants to change his household. And we know that Christians are broken, sinful, redeemed people. And we experience some beautiful glimpses of, of our heavenly rest amongst the gathered church and in solid, growing, edifying relationships. But we are infected by this disease called sin that rears its ugly head at the most inopportune moments. And many people are content to live in a state of relative unhealthiness. It's like if you asked yourself the question, how much strife is okay? The answer is none. It's like, well, how much poison is all right? Well, we should strive not for the absence of issues, but for the glory of God in the midst of issues. People are in the mix, there will be issues. But we don't want to be derailed from our calling to be bright and shining lights for the gospel in the world. And for that to happen, we need to be reoriented often to what the Bible says about relationships. To realign ourselves with what the Spirit wants to do in and through Christ's church. Now, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Gospel change relationships mean that we are living our unity in Christ. We're living it out. We are positionally unified in Christ. We are to be practically growing into that positional reality. It's like marriage. You were declared one at the altar and then you spend your lifetime learning how to become one. Or not. There are a lot of people that are, that are content to experience only misery due to selfishness. Your experience of gospel change relationships are going to reflect your growth in the gospel. If you know Jesus, you know, in spite of all the challenges, your relationships will be more and more reflective of Christ's transforming power. Believers are, are on a journey to eternity together. It's not just all that we see here on earth. The Bible is our, our supreme um, compass, and the Holy Spirit is guiding us. And we have a family called Brothers and Sisters in Christ that we need to grow together with. Some of you had really bad relationships with your brothers and sisters in your family of origin, or maybe you still do, and oftentimes people just take those bad relationship ideas and, and just superimpose them upon the body of Christ. We are called to glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just to talk about it, but to live it. And what we should be observed doing due to our faith in Christ are what we would call our values. We've looked at God-centered worship. We've looked at Christ-centered preaching. We've looked at God-dependent prayer. Today, gospel change relationships. In coming weeks, multi-generational ministry, Christ-honoring service, and God-confident outreach, and humble, bold leadership. And of course, we don't list every value. 
For example, we, we certainly value biblical theology. We certainly value personal holiness. But those values are woven throughout these values that we're looking at. Why do we value gospel-changed relationships? Simple answer. Because God created and commands them. God created them. It was his idea, but he also commands them. And whatever God commands, he gives power to live. What you'll see first, if you look at verse 1, is that gospel-changed relationships are, are anchored firmly in Christ's work. Look at verse 1. It begins this way. I, therefore... Whenever you come across therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? Here it is marking a transition from beliefs to behavior, from doctrine to duty, from principle to practice. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 uh, declare positional truth, uh, staggering realities built on the character uh, of God, the eternal nature of God and his faithfulness. Chapters 4 through 6 deal with the practical outworking of those positional realities. It's a pattern you see lots of places in the New Testament. You, uh, for example, Romans. Romans chapters 1 through 11 are, are bedrock gospel truth doctrine. And Romans chapters 12 through 16 are how do you live those truths. So here, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is based upon Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And if you just, you know, just skim the book of Ephesians, what you'll notice, and you start from the beginning, you'll notice that Paul begins by talking about how we're predestined and chosen and adopted into God's family. And how we have this glorious inheritance in the body of Christ. Moving on to chapter 2, you see that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and that we're unified in peace. Jesus himself being our peace. And that we know the revealed mystery of God in Christ, which is the gospel truth that all who believe are partakers of the promise of eternal life. In those days, it was Jew versus Gentile, and, and the mystery was all who believe are part of this body. And you get on down into the end of chapter 3, and you notice that Paul is praying that they would be filled with God's power to live pleasing to him. And that's really illustrated by commitment to our values. We looked at God-centered worship during our first week, and we were in Romans 11, verse 36, to chapter 12, verse 2, and there's a model of God-centered worship where it really is your will surrendered to God. And that you seek to know and actively obey the word of God. And you worship God who is worthy of worship. Well, Paul is, is also going there in Ephesians, where in Ephesians 1.6 and in Ephesians 1.12, he says you're saved to the praise of his glorious grace. You're to worship God as a, as a way of life. We also looked at Christ-centered preaching, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, which is showing us that Christ-centered preaching is spirit-empowered proclamation of the word. You read the word of God, you explain it, and, and you apply it in the spirit's power. Paul says in Ephesians 3.8, I'm called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And, and then last week we looked at God-dependent prayer. We were in very familiar territory, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. 
And we saw that God-dependent prayer is an ongoing conversation with God. That God ignites a passion in our hearts to pray. And what you see in Ephesians is that Paul is, is very intent on praying God-dependent prayers. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, you see a great prayer. And then chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, God-dependent prayer. But never underestimate the word therefore when you find it in the Bible. It's always packed with meaning. And here it's, it's packed with lots of meaning because it's, it's, it's saying that everything that has already been said, now what I'm going about to say is built on that. <coughs> Moving on in verse 1, he says, I therefore a prisoner. A prisoner. This is ironic. Here's Paul in a political system, a structure that was known for peace. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And here they jail him for preaching the gospel of peace. Paul has just laid out three chapters of universe-altering doctrine that changes souls forever. But why is he now reminding us that he is in chains in Rome? The answer is right here in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. There's the key there. For the Lord. Jesus was his true Lord, not the Roman emperor. And what he's establishing here is that his life is no longer his own. He's a prisoner of the Lord. In fact, as you go on in Ephesians 4, what you notice is that that's part of, of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So how you function and interact is the mark of what it means to be a Christian. You're identified as a believer. Your heart has lovingly been captured by the Lord Jesus. You've been found by grace and mercy. You're kept forever. You're secure in Christ. You're assured of salvation then believer, your life is not your own. Christ owns you. You're his. You've been purchased with his precious blood. You belong to Christ and, as Paul is showing us here, one another. You cannot say, well, I love Jesus, but I want to bypass the church and just go reach the world. I really don't have much to do with Christians. You're not an only child. You're part of a family, body of Christ. You're to lay down your life for fellow believers. Let me ask you, if Paul says he's a prisoner of the Lord, are you a prisoner of the Lord? Are you a prisoner of Christ by grace alone? Mankind was created in the image of God fell into sin, resulting in spiritual death, and now all people need a spiritual birth for complete and eternal salvation from sin, death, and hell. By God's grace alone, you can't earn this, you can't work this. You receive it as a gift from God through, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. It's secured eternally in Christ. We will proclaim this as long as God gives us breath. Grace Church of Orange, 50 years and counting. Jesus died on the cross in my place as my substitute to pay for my sins. He, he was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day. He's coming back with blessing for those who believe and judgment for those who do not. I pray that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be saved from your sins and God's wrath against your sin. 
Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be safe and secure in Christ. You will become a happy prisoner of Jesus. Made right with God by God's doing. Adopted into his family. You'll see here is that gospel-changed relationships are our Christ-honoring calling. Still in verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. This is strong. This is deeply personal appeal. It's heartfelt. It's intense. By the way, if you're reading in your Greek New Testament, it's the first phrase. It's marking the beginning of the second half of the letter. He's urging them based upon the doctrine that has already been laid out. And he's appealing to new believers to conform their behavior to God whom they now serve. I know Andrew said, you know, you might have been coming to this church longer than he has been alive. Well, that's not possible for you because I'm older than this church. But this is not just for new believers. All believers need to conform their behavior to God whom they serve. And, And Paul says, I urge you to walk. Some people like to run. Some people like to walk. Why does he say walk? It's simple. It was just a a way back then where they they were just saying, this is how you live. Walk equals live. It's a common way of referring to your daily life. Carry out your life. Go about your daily life. Live. Behave. Do. He says walk or live in a manner worthy. Worthy is a key word here. It literally means that which balances the scales. It it means equivalent to. The idea is live matching your position in Christ. Strive to be everything that God desires and empowers you to be. He says walk in a manner, live in a manner matching the calling, the role. To which you've been called. Two different words for called there. The role to which you've been called. You've been chosen. You've been appointed. You've been called to a task. This means is fulfill the role to which God appointed you in Christ. This is uh, the, the, the call here is God's sovereign call to salvation. It's the effectual call that saves. You've been called to a way of life. You're called to live a certain way. Not to make yourself worthy of salvation. You cannot do that. It's a call to live in a way that matches your testimony. A way appropriate to the gospel. What fits this life you've been called to. And you'll notice that gospel change relationships are focused very clearly, laser pinpoint, on action. Not just talk, but action. That you willfully, purposefully, daily make choices to live in a certain way. Paul is urging believers to live in line with the calling they've received. What are the barriers? Well, just look at verses 2 and 3 for a moment. It's just the flip side opposite of these things. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the flip side opposite of those things. First barrier, arrogance. Arrogance, pride versus humility. Shows itself in manipulation and control 
and a host of other relationship-crushing sins. A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Pursuit of God, said, Instead of poverty of spirit, we find the rankest kind of pride. Instead of mourners, we find pleasure seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. Instead of hunger after righteousness, we see humans saying, I am rich, increased in goods, I have need of nothing. Instead of mercy, we find cruelty. Instead of purity of heart, corrupt imaginings. Instead of peacemakers, we find men quarrelsome and resentful. Instead of rejoicing in, mystery, in, in, in the mysteries, we find them fighting back with every weapon at their disposal. Arrogance. It'll derail Christ-changed, gospel-changed relationships. We'll do it every time. Instead of saying, you know what, I'll be mistreated, you say, I'm going to fight back. Another barrier is harshness versus gentleness, a lack of compassion, a lack of self-awareness. You don't see how your choices affect other people. You don't even see the value of other people. Or impatience versus patience, easily angered, not willing to wait, demanding, pushy, controlling. Or unforgiveness versus forbearance. We're to forbear with one another in love, but many of us just want to operate in unforgiveness. Refuse to let the offense go. Refuse to repent and reconcile. But a prisoner gives up their rights. Another barrier is division versus peace. Unrest, friction, latent hostility, war even versus peace. A refusal to forgive to, or to relate with other believers or to rejoice with other believers. Letting a root of bitterness spring up and cause many to be defiled. People refuse to join in with the body of Christ or, or even refuse to accept other believers. You can't say, well, it's just my faith, it's just my life. Part of a family. Paul warned the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You also need to recognize with me that a lack of God-centered worship or a neglect of Christ-centered preaching, by the way, good good job, church. You're, You're here for the preaching. You're here for the singing. You're here to pray. But a lack of God-centered worship, a lack of of neglect of Christ-centered preaching and a neglect of God-dependent prayer will trip up your relationships immensely. How can we grow? Just look at verses 2 and 3 again. Do this and grow. Do what verses 2 and 3 says and grow. First, be humble. Be humble. Verse 2 says, all humility, with all humility. Now, humility was not in the Greek and Roman vocabularies of Paul's day. It was unheard of. Humility, though, is the most foundational of Christian virtue. It's the, commanded in the first beatitude. It describes Jesus. 
Tim Keller in The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness says, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. It isn't thoughts such as I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means that I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. Instead, what you do is you seek truth and you, you actually invite honest correction. I've said it before, but we leak and we need to be refilled. And we also grow cold and we need fellowship and, and we go astray and we need correction. Well, humility accepts correction. Where you seek appropriate, honest accountability, discipline, correction, because you seek what God wants for your life. You want to be corrected by the word of God, but you also invite correction from fellow believers. Because we don't know it all. We need help. No man is an island. You, you want to continually allow the gospel to change you and let other people help in the process. Because feedback, while not easy, is beneficial for everybody. Your motives, your thoughts, your, your interactions, your reactions, your words, your choices aren't always what they ought to be. And what I have found is the most effective people I know invite correction. They're open to it. Paul starts with humility, a lack of self-focus. He's a prisoner. He wants to live his calling. A second thing, if you want to grow, is not just be humble, but be gentle. He says gentleness, meekness, it's the product of humility. You'll notice that these are all connected. Product of humility, you're mild-spirited, you're self-controlled. Now, linked with humility, then, is gentleness or, or being considerate. It means you're restrained. It, it, what it literally means is controlled strength. It's not weakness. If you're gentle, you're kind. Like the country song, always be humble and kind. You'll be kind. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how we're in one body, and the, body, the members of the body ought to have the same care and concern for each other. You should ask yourself some pointed questions. Do I love fellow believers? It's interesting that many of our critical comments about people is prefaced with, I love so-and-so, but... Do I love fellow believers? Am I sensitive to the needs and feelings of other people? Do I help people feel appreciated? Do I, do I build people up or do I stir them up? Do I help or hinder relationships? I want to be gentle. You be humble, you be gentle. And third, according to this verse, you'd be patient. Patient. Paul says, with patience. That's where you're reluctant to avenge wrong. Where you're going to show patience to other believers, but not just to your close friends, to everyone else. Believers and unbelievers alike. Romans 12 tells us this. You know, you can't just say, I'm only going to be patient with Christians that I like, but Monday morning is open season on anyone in my path. You're long-suffering, you're long-tempered, 
You have a resolved patience, which is an outgrowth of humility and gentleness. Paul's a prisoner. And when you're a prisoner, you abandon your claim on your rights. To do that, you need to be self-aware. That's key. Self-awareness is key to healthy relationships in the body of Christ. I know who I am. I know who you are. I know who God is. Grace and mercy has been shown to me in Christ so I can be gracious and merciful. And I can love you because Christ first loved me. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. And still in verse 2, be forbearing. Look at the last phrase of verse 2. Bearing with one another in love. Bear one another with one another in love. Because patience finds its expression in loving forbearance. To bear with one another. Literally, it means to hold up. Uh, to put up, you're putting up with faults and idiosyncrasies because you know you have them. Love is a recurring theme in Ephesians. You've got humility, gentleness, patience, which is reflected in forbearing love for others that is to be ongoing. And it is actually to be unconditional. That you're concerned for the body, so you'll say, you know, I'm going to choose to not be offended by things I could be offended by. Imagine if everyone at Grace Church was able to genuinely forbear. We never took offense. The Holy Spirit so controlled us that no one ever got offended. What a testimony we would be. Is there ever a time to confront? Is there ever a time to have a conversation? Of course. My personal rule is this. If I really, really want to confront, I shouldn't. If I'm dreading the conversation, I should have it. We're not talking about the absence of conflict here. We are talking about godly working through and resolving conflict. You won't resolve every issue, but you seek peace. You pursue it. You understand the gospel, so you want to yield to what God wants. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, and now go to verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the fifth thing here is to be eager for unity. Verse 3, eager to maintain. Maintain means to guard. It means to keep something safe. You're keeping safe the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. No humility or gentleness or patience or forbearance. You're going to jeopardize unity. Paul is saying, you exert all your energy to maintain oneness in Christ, which binds believers together because they're bound to Christ and by Christ. Make every effort. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, keep working toward the ideal of unity. 
He assumes it's already there by virtue of believers sharing a common experience of being united by the Spirit of God. Believers must preserve the unity that God has already given to his people. And maintain, that word suggests, difficulty. It suggests a a resolute determination to overcome the difficulty. Unity is difficult. It's not easy. It's not pretty. It's pretty messy. But it's astounding to me. How many conflicts are rooted in pride? How do I know this? Because it's astounding to me that in my own life, how many conflicts are rooted in my pride? Now, sometimes someone will not be at peace with you. They refuse to be at peace with you. And a lot of people will say, see, they refuse to be at peace with me. I've tried and I'm done. They can talk to my hand. I'm going to ignore them. I'm going to avoid them. But if you would humble yourself and go out of your way to make peace, you could win them over and reconcile. Countless relationships in the body of Christ remain fractured. And this is the counterintuitive aspect of it right here. You need to listen to this one. Countless relationships in the body of Christ remain fractured because the injured party won't lay down their life. The injured party won't deny themselves. The perpetrator isn't denying himself. We all know that, but the victim can. I know it sounds weak. I know it doesn't make sense. But it is the gospel way. It will be counterintuitive to how you want to operate. The unity we have in Christ is already granted. Paul calls it the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit between Christians already exists. It's given in Christ by the Spirit who's the agent of unity. It's a bond. It's the Spirit-given oneness of all true believers that creates the bond of peace. It's the spiritual binding agent holding God's holy people together. Paul speaks of it in Colossians 2.19 with the example of ligaments being held together in a body. In Colossians 3.14, it's spoken of, of love, figuratively of the love that holds Christians together. It's like a chain tying people together. It, the bond that cements. You think of it this way. Peace is like gorilla glue for Christians. Peace is the gospel glue that guarantees that our God-given unity will not fail, will not fall apart. If you want evidence of heart change in your life, just, just ask, am I humble? Am I gentle? Am I patient? Am I forbearing? Am I eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? You really need to do this or you will not have gospel-changed relationships. 
Our relationships are sometimes tough because we do not think through the biblical implications and the expectations. Believers, God expects something from you. He wants you to desire what is good and right and true. He wants you to forget about yourself and to think how to bless other people. Do not seek your own pleasure, but what's best for others. Gospel change relationships mean we are living our unity in Christ. And when that happens, your fellowship changes. One friend wrote this. Fellowship among true believers is sweet, not because they respect each other's decisions and include each other no matter what. It is because they are united in the glory of surrendering this life for the next. Surrendering the mortal for the immortal. The imperfect for the perfect. Christians lose the world in sanctification but gain Christ. Without honesty and surrender in sanctification, there could never be true fellowship. And as soon as a Christian starts protecting the natural man, defending it from its rightful crucifixion, quenching the spirit, the sanctification stops, the fellowship stops. Isn't it amazing how, how, much, how much boils down to surrender in the Christian life? Let me just say, as I've been preaching today, if God has put something on your heart, put someone on your heart, and you know you need to deal with it, then act today. Don't let it go. If you're going to, need, going to embrace unity, we need to, we need to be connected. I mean, think about what we say at Grace. You need to be in some kind of a group. God's word and prayer and fellowship and outreach and live the gospel out. People bring energy and life to a setting. Can you imagine if I was up here preaching to the video camera and you weren't here? I could see you and look you in the eye and I know so many of you. The ministry of presence that we are all exercising. Jim Burns put it this way, you bless people with your presence. Look what Paul said in Philippians 1.27. He said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It can only be done in context of people. Why Paul is emphasizing unity here in Ephesians 4. You can't do this alone. Want to live worthy of your calling? No worthy living apart from the body of Christ. God's power working mightily. This is what Paul was just praying before he said these words. God's power working mightily in believers. So don't hinder God's work. You choose the thoughts you're going to entertain, the words you're going to say, the action you're going to take. Well, let truth transform you and all your interactions. If the gospel has changed your heart, your relationships will change because you will work hard with the Lord's strength to do what you know is right because it's part of being in the family. Gospel change relationships mean we are living our unity in Christ. That we are displaying humility and gentleness and patience. We put others' needs ahead of our own. We forbear. We take no offense when we can we strive for unity so that the body of Christ is a shining testimony to the world of the transforming power of Jesus. And Lord, thank you that you are the one that brings us about. Thank you, Lord, that by your grace, by your mercy, you grant us gospel change relationships. In Christ's name, amen.